I'm going to read the first 13 verses of uh, James chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, you have, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How can you tell what someone really thinks of Jesus? Very difficult sometimes, to be honest, because our, our faith is, is so personal to us. You know, we may actually say all the right things and yet ha have no vital personal relationship with Jesus at all. We may appear to be full of joy and happiness and exuberance, but actually they ma that may owe much more to our psychological makeup than to our relationship with Christ. And we may have a respected office in the, in the church, but actually be a lot further from Christ than the least conspicuous worshipper in that church. There are actually a number of tests that the New Testament gives us to help us to examine ourselves, but this morning I just want us to look at one. The reality of our faith can be judged in part at least by the way we treat other people. More specifically, the reality of our faith can be measured by how we treat people whom society despises. One of the main things, actually, that Jesus uh, uh, did, which scandalized the respectable people of his day, was that he associated with sinners. He talked to prostitutes, he ate with tax collectors, he touched lepers. You know, if he came to Oxford, he would have actually spent most of his time down the Cowley Road, I'm sure of it. 
and called his disciples as well to follow his example. But it already seems that by James's day, by the time that James wrote this letter, Jesus' example was in danger of being completely forgotten. And yet James is going to tell us this morning that if we do not follow this example of Christ, we not only fail in this life, no, he says, we compromise our eternal blessing in the next. First of all, he shows us the, uh, the problem that he's talking about. Just put the text on the overhead so you can look at that or at your Bible, if, uh, uh, whichever you prefer. Verse 1, he says, My brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ don't show favoritism. Jesus is often called the Lord, often called Jesus Christ, or even the Lord Jesus Christ, but here he is called our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? I think the most likely explanation is that he wants our minds to turn to Jesus' glorious return to judge the living and the dead. He told us, didn't he, that he would come again in his Father's glory. And James wants us to remember that. He is the glorious, sovereign judge. That's who Jesus is. The prospect that he will judge each one of us makes James speak to us very, very seriously. He actually sketches a little scenario to help us to visualize what he means when he says, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves, he says. First of all, there's an obviously rich man who walks into this Christian meeting. Whether it was a meeting for worship or for some other purpose is actually not very clear. It's not, not very important either. This is a group of Christians who've gathered together. It's actually not clear either whether this stranger is a Christian or not. And it, it may be that James wants us to be uncertain about that because it's very difficult to judge, isn't it, when someone first, first walks through the door. Literally, James says this stranger is gold-fingered and bright-clothed. He's a rich and powerful figure. And he is uh, courteously and politely directed to a comfortable seat. James is not actually criticizing that. He's certainly not encouraging us to be discourteous to those people. Now, the problem comes when the steward notices that there's a tramp trying to slip in quietly behind him. Now, he mustn't be allowed anywhere near this honoured visitor. He must uh, stand at the back, or perhaps, uh, if he does take a seat, we must make sure that it's the, the worst one, one out of the way. Literally, um, uh, it says... Uh, Sit here under my footstool. It was a, this was a position of contempt that defeated foes were put in. 
There's no doubt in the steward's mind that this tramp should be despised. That's the picture that uh, James wants us to have in our minds. And to be honest, it's very East Oxford, isn't it? You know, through the doors of this church come all sorts of people with enormous discrepancies of, of wealth and power between them. Now, very often when, when uh, as a preacher, you're trying to uh, apply a passage in the Bible to, to the 20th century, you have to struggle and be a bit imaginative. We don't need any imagination for this one, do we? To be honest, the gold-fingered and the ragged-clothed people walk through this door, the doors. James is telling us that we cannot be obsequious to the first whilst despising the second. In fact, he gives us four reasons that I want us to look at. Why such, such discrimination is massively short-sighted. Four reasons why we should not show favoritism. The first is found in verses uh, 5 and 6. Firstly, he says, favoritism ignores God's ways. Listen, my dear brothers, he says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? but you have insulted the poor. James is saying there's a general pattern in Scripture that God actually reserves his special concern and love for the poor, not because the poor are particularly virtuous. Well, I I haven't noticed that, at least. Not because God hates riches. God delights in riches. The blessings of heaven are described in terms of riches poured out to his people. God's not against riches at all. Now, God's special concern for the poor is precisely because this blessing of wealth has not been given to them. In his compassion, God's heart goes out to such people And in their need, in turn, they find themselves able to express a wholehearted longing for heaven that those who are more blessed in this world do find it very hard to express sometimes. The poor, as James says, tend to be rich in faith. Now go to a poverty-stricken country if you doubt that. Now meet ordinary, humble believers who earn less in a whole year than many of us would earn in a week, and sit down with them and hear them pray. I've done it. Extraordinary experience sometimes. Hear them speak of heaven. See the joy that there is, there is in their heart. Now James uh, knows that the glorious riches of the kingdom he has promised to those who loved him are very, very special to poor people. Such people are prepared to make enormous sacrifices for a better place in heaven. You know, I recently read about a group called the Friends Missionary Prayer Band of South India. That group has only 8,000 members and very little wealth. 
but it has 80 full-time missionaries working in North India. And the uh, writer of the article who uh, referred to this group calculated that if his American denomination, with its immensely uh, greater disposable income, was able to live up to, the, to uh, the standard of sacrificial faith that these uh, South Indian believers had got, they would be sending 26,000 missionaries instead of the 500 that the denomination proudly boasted at that time. That's the reality. James says the poor are often rich in faith. Of course, every believer, whether rich or poor, has been given immeasurable riches in, in, uh, in heaven. God promised his, his, his kingdom to every one of us, whether we are rich and poor. But somehow there's a special touch of God so often on people who've had so little in this life that they have learned to yearn with a sweet yearning for heaven. James says, how can you despise and insult such people? You know, I've seen that here in this church. Hopefully not the despising and the insulting, but the preciousness sometimes of seeing God working in surprising people. First summer I was here, there was a drifter who walked into the church. Some of you may remember him. I think every one of us who uh, saw him assumed that he was after money. I certainly did. He was unshaven, he was dirty, he... Uh, looked like he'd been sleeping rough, and I went up and talked to him. And quite to my surprise, he didn't ask for money. He said, uh, how long you love Jesus then? So I told him, he said, well, I've loved him for 17 years now. And he said, I love to come to churches like this one, he said, because I see all the people, especially the young people, and I think, isn't it great that another generation are worshipping God? Now, that man was very far from perfect. I'm sure he had all sorts of sins to his name, just like we have. But I realised God had invested in that man. God had promised that man eternal riches. We are going to meet that man in heaven again. And what's going to happen is that he will run up to us and say, now my joy is complete. I worshipped with you on that day and saw what God was doing in your life, but now I see it in its fullness. How terrible if we had to turn around and say, now I'm totally flabbergasted. I never thought God was working in you. Well, let me give you another example. This was a Sunday evening. I can't remember how long ago it was. I was preaching, not very well, not a, very, not a vintage sermon. And uh, to be honest, the small congregation that were here were nodding off. It happens, I know. 
But what no one else could see was that there was a shabbily dressed lady who'd come in the back of the church here with a drunk friend. And as I started talking about Christ's death on the cross, while everyone else snored quietly, she was absolutely transfixed. It was extraordinary. And a week later, I was walking down the Cowley Road and she came up to me, that lady, and she thanked me for that sermon. I I don't know what's going on in her life. But I know that in this city, the Lord touches people sometimes in a special way. who we consider poor. What a terrible thing if we had told that lady, sit on the floor at my feet and despise the work that God seemed to be doing in her life. That's James' first point then. Favoritism ignores God's ways. His second point is that favoritism ignores the real world. It's found in the second half of verse 6 and verse 7. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong, James says? He's not trying to say that poor people are innocents, no. But he is saying that rich people have power. And because they too are sinful, they tend to use that power in ways which magnify their sinfulness. They tend to exploit other people for a start, he says. Always trying to get the maximum work out of people for the minimum amount of money. They tend to use their their clout in the corridors of power to get their way. They drag people into court. And that power that they have learned to exert in this world always leads to pride and a sense that they are above religion, a sense that they can patronise God, perhaps giving him the old nod in his direction, but with no sense that this is the Lord to whom they must bow. They slander his noble name, says James. It seems clear that the church in James' day was under pressure from the rich and powerful, and there is always a temptation in that context for the church to suck up to such people. If you look at the history of evangelicalism in this country, you find it's always been at its strongest when it's been radically committed to the poor, actually, and always terribly weak when it was desperately trying to maintain its place as a respectable part of British society. Now, the story of the decline of Methodism in the 19th century is is just one example tale. For instance, in a letter written to the Methodist, uh, from the Methodist Conference to the uh, Prime Minister of the day in 1812, the uh, Methodist Church reassured the government that, they said, evangelicalism soothes the poor under poverty and distress and by God's grace makes them content under the apparently adverse dispensations of divine providence. 
actually in the 19th century, in one five-year period, the Methodists lost a third of their membership, partly at least a result, as a result of their obsequiousness to the ruling classes. Let me say again, God is not against the rich and powerful. If he was, there was a good proportion of us here who would be God's enemies, because most of us, myself included, I would say, fall into that category. God is as delighted with our worship as with the worship of anyone else, but it is naive in the extreme to put a good relationship with the people who count as a top priority for the church. If those people are unconverted, then like everyone else, they will always want to tame the church, but they will have power to do it. They will try to maintain their own personal interests. They will try to keep God out of the equation. A church cannot afford to be a tame part of the system. The church must always be prophetic to the system. Now, there was a religious census in 1851, the mid-19th century, and it revealed, much to everyone's horror, that the working classes had been almost completely estranged from the church. One writer wrote this in response. It would be an intense gratification to the middle and wealthier classes everywhere to see their neighbours from a humbler lot assemble with them in their common acts of worship, provided that the preliminary for public worship, i.e. cleanliness, be attended to. The church had ceased to be a vital proclaimer of the Christian gospel. It had just become a middle-class club. Favoritism ignores the real world and it destroys the church in consequence. Thirdly, James says, favoritism ignores God's law. Verses 8 and 9, if you real, really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. This is the royal law because it's the prince of laws. It's the one that sums up and overarches all the laws of the Old Testament concerning how we treat one another. Jesus made that plain, didn't he? And, says James, we, if we break it, then our whole morality falls in tatters. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it, he says. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Now imagine a murderer standing in the dock and saying, certainly I committed murder, Your Honour, but I've been faithful to my wife. Absurd. Any violation of the law makes us a lawbreaker. In a sense, you could see God's law as being like a, a beautiful work of art by him. It reflects his character, 
He set his law down, the way in which we should conduct ourselves, so that we can see, actually, the beauty of his creativity. Imagine then, with that in mind, someone going up to the uh, Mona Lisa, and taking a knife and slashing that picture from top to bottom. And then saying, well, I liked most of the picture. It was just the bit down that line that I didn't like. Absurd, isn't it? Now, a single cut has destroyed the whole. So, says James, to fail at just one point makes us destroyers of God's perfect law. No one is saying it's easy to love our neighbours as ourselves, is it? The call to Christian love costs everything. It cost Jesus his life, and he tells us it will cost ours. We're not just told to be compassionate with our money. Jesus says, no, that there should, compassion should be the dominant note of our whole lives. And, and he says, love for neighbour must be indiscriminate too. Remember the Good Samaritan. There we learn that our neighbour is anyone who happens to be in trouble. And says Jesus, that love must be total. Love your neighbour as yourself. He's not saying don't love yourself. He's saying it's legitimate to love yourself. But he's saying the very care and attention and pampering that you pour upon yourself, quite rightly, we should pour on other people with exactly the same lavishness and concern and affection. That is not easy. We will certainly not have assuaged our consciences just by giving a bit of money or saying something nice to someone. And certainly not always by doing for people exactly what they ask us to do. There is a commitment for that person as a human being that we are called to have. Being unloving towards the poor ignores God's law. And last and perhaps most seriousness, seriously here, being unloving towards the poor ignores God's judgment. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, he says. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And when we read uh, instructions like, uh, love your neighbour as yourself, there is a tendency for us to think of James as being rather like... Um, those ineffectual vicars who are always portrayed so often on the media. We, we think of him as wringing his hands and saying, oh, please be nice to people. Well, James is saying something much, much more serious than that. He is saying, I have seen the terribleness of the wrath of God. Say, I know that every single one of you whom I'm speaking to today will have to face God face to face and face judgment. He says, I'm imploring you, brothers, 
to be merciful to others because of the seriousness of God's wrath. On that day, James says, God's final judgment will mirror our judgment of others. The authenticity of our faith will be measured by how we treat other people. So that one day, in fact, the standards by which we have treated other people will, will reflect back onto us. And God himself will be speaking the very words and thinking the very thoughts that we thought when we saw someone who was poor and lowly. Isn't that shocking? Shocks me, you know. I mean, just, just imagine it. Just imagine what God might say. Who's that coming in through the gates of St. Peter? Oh, it's Evangelical Joe. I might have guessed. I've learned to be cynical about him. I had the measure of him long ago when I saw him despise that tramp. This is my heaven. He's far too shabby for this place. Evangelical Joe. Look at the sin stains all over him. I bet he's been so profligate he hasn't even got two pennies to rub together in heaven. These evangelicals, they claim they want to worship me, but when it comes down to it, they just think I'm a soft touch. They just want a freebie. They just want to get out of me what they can, and then they're gone off to their little corner of heaven to worship I don't know what. Well, I won't even give him a smile. I won't encourage him in this place. Let him go to the other place. Tell the steward to be more careful who he lets in in future. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Or imagine God again. Who's that coming in through the gates of St. Peter? Look at all those stains of sin marring her. Oh, it's Evangelical Josephine. She has been such a trial to me. She has failed me again and again and again. She is riddled through with inconsistency and hypocrisy. I gave and I gave to her throughout her life and 99% of the time she abused that. But deep down in my heart, I know that in that heart of hers I can see love for me. I saw it the day that she was filled with compassion for that drunkard who shouted and swore outside the church. I'm going to clothe her in Christ's righteousness. I'm going to wash away all those marring sins of hers. 
I'm going to fill her with joy and praise for all of eternity. Welcome her in. Mercy triumphs over judgment, says James. How much do we need God's mercy? What peril do we put ourselves in when we are unmerciful and cynical towards other people? fills me with horror to think that God will apply to me all the unkind, critical, judgmental things that I have said. And it fills me with joy, I can tell you, when I think that, that my acts of mercy, perhaps especially my profligate, my ill-advised acts of mercy, will encourage God to be profligately, ill-advisedly merciful to me. You know, I remember Becky Man Manley uh, Pippard in her book Out of the Salt Shaker telling of how a middle-class, middle-aged church wanted to reach out to, to young people and one day a young man walked into the church in his jeans and T-shirt and that young man never wore shoes. I think it was the hippie era. He sauntered down the aisle to the front By the time he got to the front he realised that there was uh, no seats. So he squatted down on the floor underneath the pulpit. Becky Pivot says you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. And then, to everyone's horror, a besuited old man got up from his seat at the back of the church and began walking down the aisle and everyone said, you can't blame him. You can't blame him for what he's about to do. He's an old man. He doesn't understand. You can't blame him. When that man got to the front, he slowly lowered himself and he sat on the floor by the young man. And they worshipped together. That's mercy. That's grace. That's getting alongside someone. Showing you love him. She actually said one of the interesting things was that young man never realized what had been done for him. He wasn't grateful particularly because he didn't realize the, the enormous barrier that that elderly man had had to get over. There wasn't any immediate thanks. I'm very, very excited, you know, about what the Lord is and can be doing amongst us as a church. I sense the Lord is really doing some good things amongst us. We have a massive challenge because we live in an area where the issues that James is bringing up before us are very, very real. When I came here, I, I, I didn't realize quite what extent those issues were going to be real for us, but I feel more called ministering here now than I did, did a couple of years ago when I came. Because I can see what a deep understanding of God's love and mercy and grace can do for us. And how that can transform 
our witness to this area. I have no specific project for that, except for us to know the mercy of God more profoundly and live it out in our lives. Let's pray, shall we? And let's just remind ourselves of what the whole service has been about. Christ's mercy, Christ's willingness to forego heaven. How profoundly that needs to change us. Oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we stand in need of your miraculous help. If we don't yet know you, Lord, please show us the immense beauty of Christ's condescension to stand alongside us and draw us, Lord, in a way that we cannot resist to you. But for those of us who know you, Lord, we ask exactly the same thing. Change us, we pray. Make us new by your Holy Spirit.